Hi, this is Carol, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. What you're about to hear is part two of our interview with Jeffrey Kane, journalist and author of the book Samsung Rising. In the last episode, we talked about the history of Samsung, how it grew from a grocery item trade store to the three-generation tech empire it is today. We also looked at changes in its corporate culture and strategy, and Jeffrey even shared his career path and personal advice to journalists looking to write a book on a company. If you're already caught up, then let's jump right in. And you talked a little bit about this earlier as well. What are your perspectives on their dual relationship with Apple? The fact that they're both a supplier to Apple, but also a competitor at the same time. So that's a, a really good question. And, you know, that's something that I've been exploring for a long time. And sometimes I still have trouble understanding that mindset. I mean, I hate to admit it, but there's a longstanding debate in Samsung that always comes up. And it's, should we focus on being the component supplier or should we focus on being the competitive company making a similar product? You know, I think that with Apple, the latter debate won out. A long time ago when the iPhone came out, there was a debate. So, you know, why we have this new, it was called an AMOLED screen that was a, a massive leap forward in display technology. And so the executives who were overseeing the design of the screen, they said, well, why don't we just supply this screen to the iPhone? I mean, Apple wants it. It's a really powerful screen. If we compete with them directly, isn't there a risk that Apple is simply going to cancel the screen order, that they're going to hurt our semiconductors business? But in the end, the more marketing focused and the more software and you could say the smartphone focus, the actual user interface focus people who make the phones themselves, they won out. And that's because the chairman, Lee Kun-hee, and also his son, Jay Lee, they came out in the end and they said, we need to be a major multinational brand name. We are not just a component maker. A component maker is what we were you know, in our past. A component maker, that is essentially the factory floor company. That's the manufacturer that focuses on exports rather than making a device that you can hold in your hands. And that really brings prestige to the company. You know, People say, are you going to buy uh, an Apple or a Samsung? And there are really only two companies, at least for the past decade, that, you know, people would choose between one or the other. There are other competitors now, but I think that for a company, that's a major marker of brand power that your company is the only company named in the same breath as Apple. So it was risky. But I think that they ultimately made that decision, not necessarily on the need for a profit, but the need to turn Samsung into a global brand that everybody knew, that everybody saw the name, they saw the Samsung store. They would, you know, go into the store, play with the Samsung phones. They didn't just want to be making screens for Apple. They did not want to be second fiddle. And that's the mindset they have. And that's what's happening now, actually. So there, there's a big question mark in Samsung over what is the future growth area? Are we going to be making components for the next 10 years for these AI-focused companies? Or is there going to be some big technological hardware disruption that's going to happen? Maybe the foldable phones or maybe augmented reality, virtual reality. Is there something that we can do that will turn us into, you know, another Apple for the next 10, 20 years even? You know, is there something that we can do that we can put our name on that will make us prestigious? They actually stopped their VR line, the Galaxy Gear. So that's crossed out now. The Galaxy Fold, their foldable smartphones have not been doing that well, although they claim to the contrary. So I think that's pretty much been etched out at this point. And then the question mark is, so what is that next growth area? And right now it's starting to look more like the components and it's starting to look more like the behind the scenes stuff, but we'll see what happens. Maybe in the next five years, there will be a disruption that not many people can see. 
coming that they'll jump onto. Yeah, talking about Samsung phones, I can't um, help but think about uh, the news about all the exploding, you know, Galaxy S7s, right? That was uh, in the news for quite a long time. And I think a lot of people still think about that uh, when they think about a, a Samsung phone, unfortunately. Yes, and that was a big stain on their record. I was actually in Korea when that started happening. And, you know, over in Korea, it was just, it was incredible just watching the difference in responses in Korea. So there, you know, you read the Korean news reports in Korean, not the English ones. I got some leaked documents from a government regulator. You know, even as these explosions were happening, there was this gut instinct to praise Samsung and to, to say that Samsung had solved the problem that they, they're recalling the phones, that the company is reforming. It's not going to be this top down military structure anymore. So what happened was that Samsung recalled these phones, but then they issued more dangerous devices by accident, not realizing it. And then they had to do a second recall and they had to just simply end the product because it was such a disaster. I think that this really exposed the blind side of Samsung that, you know, if you are a lifelong Samsung executive, you are filled with pride about your company and how it's the representative company of Korea. And they, they keep running into this problem over and over again, where they're blinded by either a problem or a technological disruption. They were also, you know, dismissive at first of the iPhone. A lot of Samsung executives thought, come on, we don't have to make smartphones. Smartphones are not going to be the future. And the reason they said this was because the Korean government had a protectionist uh, trade measure against the iPhone. It was really hard to get an iPhone in Korea, almost impossible back when it first came out. And so, of course, you know, walking around Seoul, you're going to see all these Korean brands, including Samsung, in the hands of all the tech users, all the young people who like to get their new first smartphones. And I think that it's this complacency that really settles in over the Samsung bureaucracy that has just, it has always been such a problem when there's an emergency or something big is about to happen. And that also happened with the Galaxy Note 7. So they ended up blaming the batteries in both times, in both recalls. They said that the battery was the problem in the first one, and the battery was the problem in the second one. They gave this press conference to release their findings, and they talked about these engineering problems with the battery itself. But so they were ordering two separate sets of batteries from two different suppliers. And the chances that both these suppliers would manufacture batteries that caught fire and burned, that is an incredible like it's just so incredibly small. It's like a one one guy told me that it's like a meteor striking your house twice. What are the chances of that? And Samsung never addressed that. So why why did two different suppliers make two batteries that were both faulty and that were dangerous to the public? They talked about engineering, but they never actually got into the the management problems from this top-down hierarchical structure and the Samsung pride that exists. It took six weeks, you know, of exploding phones for the product to be canceled. Would that happen at, you know, any other major smartphone maker, big, you know, some big technology firm, if iPhones started exploding, I, I would, I just have a feeling that, you know, if Steve Jobs or Tim Cook were there, it would be one to two days where, you know, recall, maybe cancel the product, sorry, but at Samsung, because people are so enamored with their success and so I guess I would even say indoctrinated with propaganda about how great Samsung is. They have trouble seeing their mistakes and they have trouble reflecting on what they actually did wrong. I've actually seen this in personal interviews with Samsung executives. Often I can't speak with them about what went wrong or, you know, what, what are the biggest mistakes that Samsung has made? You know, they retort to those questions and they'll often say, well, I mean, there, there is no mistake. I mean, yeah, so in the, you know, maybe 30 years ago, we were not a good manufacturer, but today, Samsung, we're 
a number one brand. We don't really, you know, make serious mistakes here. But seriously, that is a big flaw. And that's something that I think Jay Lee, now that he's going to be the next chairman, is going to have to address at some point if he can. So it doesn't seem like they've actually learned their lessons from this huge fiasco. What are some of the other fundamental flaws that you think lies within Samsung? I think that there is an excessive reverence for the leaders that, well, it did work in the past. It worked when it comes to executing and building a big company and building a nation. It doesn't function well anymore. I think that the world has changed so much and, you know, we live in a world now that's not all about, you know, executing the manufacture of hardware. You know, we're not living in the age anymore of, say, IBM or GE or, you know, even Sony. These are hardware-based companies. And that is the world that Samsung comes from. It's a hardware manufacturer at its core with a powerful leader who can just tell people to execute and they'll simply do it. We live in a world now where really the driving force is software and artificial intelligence. It's everywhere. I mean, when I order things on Amazon or use Google, I, I, I mean, you're basically using Alibaba. These are AI systems that are learning about you and learning how to advertise to you and sell to you and they're selling that data. It's a completely different model and it's not the kind of model that really relies on a top-down leader. There's no factory floor where everybody's working together to manufacture the most chips as fast as they can and sell them in, in the highest volume they can. I think that the world now favors companies that working with software, it tends to be, it's a softer and more creative skill set. And it tends to be, these companies tend to be a bit flatter. You know, they, they have less bureaucracy. They have fewer executives in the hierarchy because it's, it's a team of software developers who are more individualized. They're at their computers. Maybe they communicate by some kind of Google Talk or Facebook Messenger, but they're not really in there at some factory floor together fighting for the future of the company. They'll release software, and then that's actually the beginning of the, the software process itself. Once you release it, you have to patch it. You have to look for bugs. You have to update it. You have to develop a user community. You know, you need to have developers who say, if you have some AI platform, they can develop some kind of app that would work well with that AI system and, you know, maybe make your platform even more influential and, and more, you know, more profitable. But I think that Samsung, this is the problem they're having. It's the weakness that they still have this leader worship that really, like, it, it works for, you know, the, the components. It works when you're manufacturing things, but it's not going to work if they want to build an actual ecosystem of products that are powered by a single software program or some kind of AI system. It's a huge weakness because think about it this way, Samsung makes everything as do most Korean conglomerates. They make so many things that have all the same transistors and semiconductors inside them. What if they put every single device on a Samsung ecosystem and you're at home, you're, you're in this internet of things world and your Samsung refrigerator is connected to the smartphone and the washing machine. And, you know, basically you can control your entire home by voice, you know, without even an AI assistant. You just, you know, you walk into your home, your, your phone's listening to you. You know, that's the kind of thing, if, if they could master that kind of ecosystem, Samsung would be such an even more influential company and more powerful than it already is, more profitable. But they've struggled in that area. It's the corporate culture that stops that from happening. They keep killing good software projects because the hardware side of the company, they don't have good management skills when it comes to managing the creation of software. And we've been talking a lot about Samsung. You know, we talked about the three generations and it's as if it was, you know, passed down so easily, but, but it wasn't, right? There were a lot of battles, I would say, between the siblings, you know, every generation to, to decide really who gets to control the company, who really gets the company. 
company, like Lee Kun Hee, he's the fourth son, right, of, of B.C. Lee. And then with Jay Lee as well, he has his other, you know, sisters who are also in charge of different uh, parts of the, the Samsung Corporation. Do you also talk about that in your book, the maybe some of the, the juicier gossip or, or the family feud? Oh, yes, yes, uh, without a doubt. And the family feud, that was... I don't know if you've ever watched these Korean dramas before, but writing <laughs> yes. about that. <laughs> the Family Feud, it, it follows a Korean drama script, or it also follows the script of, there's a show on HBO called Succession that's kind of an equivalent. It's about this this influential, wealthy media family in New York City, and they're they're fighting over who's going to get the company, and there's a shareholder battle that, that you know, the shareholders don't really like them, and that the kids are seen as kind of dumb and, you know, one of them has a drug problem. And it's like uh, lifting the veil on the inheritance and succession process and showing how silly this whole thing is. So <laughs> Samsung has a, a very similar story. And it's it's a story of three feuding heirs who fought each other. And eventually, so one of these heirs went to jail back a long time ago, but went to prison for over a, a another corruption scandal. He was there for five years. And then another heir, the oldest son, came in and was appointed by his father to run the company in his place. He actually stepped down because of a lot of these juicy scandals that were going on. And so this oldest son, his name was Emang. He, he he mismanaged the company massively. He was, um, I actually interviewed one of his family members and you know, he said that he was dissolute. He was a troublemaker. He he did something like he, he brought in some executives who were respected in the company and told them to kneel in front of him. And, you know, just like going around, just angering people. And the, the company, Samsung was in chaos. This was way back in the 1960s. And so the father returned and told his son to step down. And the father, B.C. Lee, reinstated himself as the chairman of the Samsung Group and eventually announced that his youngest son, Lee Kun-hee, was going to become the heir. So in the Korean dynastic tradition, and maybe a lot of dynastic traditions out there, it's usually the first son who is first in line to inherit some big asset, some kingdom or castle or whatever. And this was the beginning of this blood feud that just went on and on between rival members of the family. There was one incident where, you know, the Samsung chairman, there, there were found to be cameras on his house that were looking into a rival family member's home nearby. And there were Samsung employees who were tailing in their cars, like a, a rival family member who was driving around. There was a major, a few major lawsuits. And a lot of these, these juicy details came out in the testimony, but some of the Samsung siblings, they sued the Samsung chairman. They wanted to get what they thought was their part of the inheritance. They lost that lawsuit in the end. And then I think that the, the final tragedy was that this brother who was uh, estranged, he, he died and, you know, his life as an early leader of Samsung had essentially been written out of history by Samsung itself. It's almost as if he was, you know, he's the loser and he's forgotten because the, the victors are the ones who write the history. It's in the true dynastic tradition. So, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed writing that story. I actually didn't want it to overpower the business aspects of the book. So I tried to keep it, you know, within reason. I actually cut out some other parts that you know, just it just got to be a bit too lengthy, and it, and you know, I think that readers eventually they they're not going to want to hear a family soap opera, but eventually they want to hear about Apple and they want to hear about Sony and the actual business decisions that made the company successful. A hundred percent. But did you also mention perhaps Jay Lee's sister, you know, Lee Bujin, who is a very successful businesswoman? Do you think possibly she might be able to actually inherit Samsung instead of her brother and breaking, you know, the male tradition, perhaps? Oh, yes. And actually, I had more about this in an earlier draft of the book. But 
I had to cut it in the end because the book was going too long. I think the publisher wanted to keep it at a certain length where it's sellable. But then also a lot of the talk about is Ibujin going to take over Samsung? It got a little bit too speculative after a while. I mean, there, there's a lot of gossip about that in Korea, but I decided that it was just a little too speculative to be in a journalistic book. I have to keep it to, you know, things that can be proven either through interviews or through historical records. But um, yeah, so to give some backdrop to listeners, so the, the sisters of Jay Lee, he has two sisters. He actually had a, another sister who sadly killed herself about 15 years ago. She it, it, This was another family soap opera thing, another K-drama thing, but she was dating a man who her parents did not approve of because he was a man of lesser wealth. He wasn't from a, a dynastic family that was as respected as the Lees. So she had um, a very high-end apartment in New York. I think she was studying fashion or arts at one of the prestigious schools there. And she went home one day to her apartment, I, I think nearby NYU, one of those big universities, and she killed herself. It, it was really a tragedy. And it was a source of uh, enormous grieving in Korea because she was just so well loved by so many people there. She had her blog, she posted, it was almost like a blog about the story of my life and she was open and transparent and people, she had fans. Uh, and the fact that she would take her own life was, you know, she was the most beloved of the siblings and, you know, she's the one who has to go. It's, it's It was a tragedy over in Korea. The other two, the remaining sisters, Ibujin and Lee Sohyun. So one of them, uh, Ibujin, she's often called in Korea, the little Lee Kun-hee named after her father. So Ikon Hee is her father, the current chairman. She's widely seen as just somebody who is more competent and uh, you know, maybe a bit more tuned into things and maybe a better speaker, a bit tougher. Uh, so a lot of Koreans actually don't really like Jay Lee that much. Despite all the reverence towards him and Samsung, there have been a few polls in Korea over the year where they took like this legitimacy of wealth poll. And one poll found that you know if you rank every... Chable, next the next generation Chable leaders, Jay Lee was near the bottom in terms of the legitimacy of his wealth. People didn't think that he was that capable and that he's not really the one by merit who should be inheriting Samsung. And one of the reasons for that is because Jay Lee stumbled on a major Samsung project called eSamsung many years ago, and it was his first debut, and it was a company that failed. But then not only did it fail, but his family protected him, so the Samsung affiliates purchased his failing shares to protect him financially, which is really just, I mean, if that happened in the EU or America, I mean, that would be a jail sentence right there. That would be many years in prison. But, you know, that happens in Korea because these table leaders are just so powerful. So Jay Lee, not seen as, you know, very astute, seen as kind of a bit of adult by Koreans. And this also reminds me of HBO's succession because the oldest son is you know, he's trying to prove himself, but he's seen as not that good at what he does and has this drug problem and drinking problem and he's kind of adult. And so I, I won't get too far into that. But so the, the little Econ he, you know, she's been running the Shilla Hotel, which is Samsung's hotel. You know, there have been a number of corporate, I guess, scandals there over the years, but she's done a good job of responding to them and, you know, making sure that the company comes out looking good and that they, they, they take care of things and apologize. So there was one problem once at the Shilla Hotel where somebody who was a woman who was wearing a hanbok, which is a traditional Korean dress, walked in and they said, you can't be here. You can't wear traditional clothing here. You know, you need to wear a suit and tie or you know, a dress or something, which was a massive insult all over Korea. I, I, I can't imagine. It's just a, you know, a, a prestigious hotel like that you know, in Korea 
telling people they can't, you know, embrace their own culture. It, it's just, you know, I, I just, that's just terrible public relations. She's done an excellent job of, you know, when these scandals happen, putting a lid on them and correcting the policies and saying we can't do that. Whereas with Jay Lee, when disasters happen at Samsung, like the Note 7 fires, we don't hear from him at all. I mean, we've never heard from Jay Lee once except the one time he testified in court for allegedly bribing the South Korean president's friend. You know, what does that say? I mean, what does that say that the heirs of the Samsung empire, you know, like he's been through all these things and nobody can really see him anywhere. He doesn't come out in public. He doesn't give a talk about, say, the Note 7. He doesn't address shareholders. He's not even on the board of directors of Samsung Electronics, and yet he's the vice chairman. You know, what does that say? That what, Like, what does Samsung have to fear about him? What is he hiding? And why is it that the two sisters, why do they have such a better track record when it comes to actually running their businesses and, you know, making strong decisions and, you know, making sure that they come out looking good and, you know, they got good public relations skills. So I, so anyway, to answer your question, you know, I, I don't think that there will be female leadership at Samsung. I just think that it's unlikely at this point. I think that the succession has already happened and that it's clear that Jay Lee, unless there's some kind of major disaster, like say Jay Lee dies in some crazy accident, uh, I don't think that his sisters are going to take control. But there was another announcement that Jay Lee just made a couple weeks ago that he's not going to pass Samsung to his children. And he apologized for a lot of the corporate behavior that was going on up top at Samsung. So it's looking like, I think that that's a serious promise. I don't think that he's going to be able to pass Samsung to his children because I think that Korean laws and regulations are too rigid now. I mean, they, they really sewed up a lot of the legal regimens that were allowing for this to happen in the past, these inheritance processes. And it's become clear that it's extremely difficult to pass these channel groups down to your kids. It usually will involve some kind of illegal activity and people are going to be arrested. There's just no way to pass a channel to your children without doing something illegal at this point. And I think that the Samsung executives realize that that's something that they've been through too. And I don't think Jay Lee wants to put his kids through what he's been through. He's just been through so much. If I, if I were in his shoes, so I can't, I'm just speculating, but I would be thinking, like, was this really worth it? This whole messed up inheritance process, was it really worth it, you know, going through all those trials and investigations for 20 years and my executives have been getting arrested and, you know, it just, it looks like a farce to the public at large. Like, do I really want to be in this position as the next chairman of Samsung or would I rather just run off and be a, a painter, you know, use my family money and go live on a beach somewhere and just be a, a guitar player on the beach, you know, like that would be my thought process. And I don't think that he wants to give the company to his children because there's just going to be so much trouble ahead for them if he actually goes forward with that. But uh, without Samsung, we probably wouldn't have seen the same Parasite film as well, right? Because I know there is also like a Samsung connection there. And that really goes to show you the amount of influence that the Lee family behind the Samsung group, how much influence they have over, you know, the economy, the politics, as well as the general entertainment and, and culture uh, scene um, in, in South Korea as well, isn't it? Yes, and that's true. Without Samsung's family and without Samsung, there would be no parasite. And that is, it's this double-edged sword, you know, and I always think of Samsung as, as showing really the best that Korea can offer and also the worst that happens in Korea. It's got, you know, great cultural, the family has done some great things, but they've also done some pretty terrible things too. In the case of Parasite, that was produced ironically by Mickey Lee, the, the vice chairwoman of CJ. So she is perhaps you could say Korea's most respected and prominent producer who had this mission to, you know, when she was younger, to export Korean culture and to make it beloved. 
And this goes back to her, you know, to the 1980s when she, she used to be a teaching assistant at Harvard. She was teaching Korean while she was a graduate student there. She returned and she realized that her lifelong dream was to, you know, to spread Korean culture. So one of the first things she did is she acquired part of DreamWorks, the, which is Steven Spielberg's film production company. They were looking for capital and they decided to bring her on. They actually rejected the Samsung chairman who also wanted that deal and they, they favored her because I think that she showed a lot more acumen when it came to you know, things like culture and the arts and you know, how to make a good film. So she used that deal. This is back, remember, when Korea is not a cinematic powerhouse, when Korean films aren't really you know, seen much worldwide. She used that deal to send filmmakers and animators to DreamWorks to study how they make their films, to see if they could pull off a similar feat and, and sort of become the DreamWorks of Korea. So, you know, if you have the backing of Steven Spielberg, that's an incredible teacher right there. I mean, it's like going into Harvard and and studying with, you know, one of the most famous professors in the world. When they returned, it it was only about five years when the CJ Group, which is the spinoff of Samsung on her side of the family, only in five years, in about the year 2000, they started releasing their first blockbuster hits that were doing very well in Korea, but also very well received at film festivals around the world. So it wasn't quite mainstream yet, but people who went to film festivals or who appreciated cinema as a hobby and an art, they really loved these early Korean films. Um, One of them was by Park Chan-wook, who he he made a film called Old Boy, um, which is really, I I would say, the first film that put Korea on the map. And then after that, uh, there were a series of successes and failures, but I think some of the next big ones were Snowpiercer, which was also produced by Mickey Lee, and got her in a lot of trouble with the Korean government. Her artists were blacklisted from government funding because the government felt that it was too critical, talking about wealth inequalities and all these kinds of things, too critical of the Korean government. But she persevered, and Parasite ended up being her rehabilitation. She was out of the scene for a number of years because of that Korean government attack. She went back to California. She had a a beautiful big residence there. She, She lives nearby Hollywood. And finally, you know, once Parasite came along, nobody really thought that a Korean film or any foreign film could win the best picture at the Oscars. It was incredible what she accomplished. And it was in large part, not just due to the great filmmaking of Bong Joon-ho, who's the director, but also due to the um, incredible business and financial backing and the networking that Mickey Lee was able to do. So she is seen within Hollywood as a very skilled networker, somebody who's very charismatic and friendly and knows a lot of people and also has a lot of capital, like a lot of money that she can invest in things. And, you know, people like she has a use in Hollywood too. So, you know, she's friends with uh, Quincy Jones, famous musician, you know, friends with Steven Spielberg and his crew. There's a big Korean scene in Los Angeles that's basically Koreatown in America. And, you know, I'll go out there. Sometimes I go hang out at some of the, the Korean hotels in Koreatown when I'm visiting. You know, I'll just be in the lobby kind of talking to people and they'll be like, yeah, I, I met Mickey Lee. You know, like we, we, went, we met a couple years ago and she was great. I mean, she seemed like it's just... I just found that she knows everyone and everyone knows her personally. And that's why she's done so well, because she has that skill to get out of her company and to you know, embrace others. Whereas I think that like over at Samsung, which is her cousin's company, I, I don't think that they are very good at kind of getting out of their heads and seeing you know, what's happening in the world outside of Korea. They, I think that they're much more insular. And that's something that, you know, it's, it's one of their downfalls. And that's going back to the Note 7 crisis. They're, they have trouble seeing what people actually think about this and what they need to do. And they sort of see themselves as this island of greatness.
Yeah, I mean, honestly, there are just so many different aspects of the Samsung Corporation and so many different family members that we could talk about that, you know, our interview could honestly just go on for a really, really long time. Um, But I do have one last question is, do you think the success that Samsung has experienced in the the past 80 years, you know, can that really be replicated in other countries? I think that it can in some countries, but I think that the world has changed so much that it's going to have to be an updated model. So we have to remember that the early success of Samsung really owes to a military industrial complex in South Korea. Um, And that's actually a similar story to American companies. I I think that there's a myth out there that American giants are, you know, products of the free market. But really, if you go back to the early days of Silicon Valley, so the days of Intel and Fairchild Semiconductor and GE and IBM. These were products of a Cold War military industrial complex where these companies were working with the government to build military technologies, basically. That's sort of where Samsung comes from, a similar process of government and company, you know, working together. Like the thing is that the Cold War is over and, you know, we live in this updated world where the software ecosystems are really what define who's successful. It's not about who can you know, build the biggest oil rig or who can build the the best roads. You know, it's not really a world so much of infrastructure and hardware things that you can hold in your hands. So, you know, in the case of China right now, because in China there's there aren't many private data privacy protections, I think that, you know, companies like Tencent and WeChat and these other Chinese firms, they're really successful at building a software ecosystem because they built apps before anyone else that can basically do everything. Like, you know, you can order your haircut through your WeChat, you know, all this stuff. But then on top of that, they're gathering all this data on what everyone's doing 24-7. And there's, you know, under the the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, there are basically no privacy protections. I mean, basically, like basically under the national security laws of China, every company could easily just be turned into an arm of the Chinese Public Security Bureau. So there aren't many lines. It's a very blurry line. There aren't many checks and balances there. But ironically, that leads to this massive data, like software database and software ecosystem where the AI is looking at everybody and uh, observing them. And, you know, basically everyone is mapped out and these companies have just amassed so much incredible data that allows them to make better software and to, you know, make better marketing and advertisements on their phones. The success of Korea is really a hardware success. It's a different world. And, you know, I think that like looking at software, once you build a platform, that platform is often universal. It's perfectly scalable. That's why investors love software because it only takes a team of 20 people to make a software app or an operating system that can be used across the world on say every Android phone or every iPhone. It's, it really is the centralizing model that changes a lot. And I think that, you know, that's something that a lot of countries, if they're trying to mimic the Korean model, they have to take that into account that they can no longer just export their way out of poverty. So Rwanda is a good example of a country that is studying Korea carefully. And, you know, under Kagami, they really want to do this top-down hardware export model. A lot of African countries are interested in this. But, you know, if they're trying to do that, but say they're under the control of a Chinese company's software ecosystem while they're doing it, even the best hardware they make, even the best hardware they export, it's not really going to make a big difference because the software is what really controls the hardware. And if, you know, Huawei releases a new 5G update, 
that, you know, like on these, say there's some future Rwandan product that they're trying to export, Huawei can just cripple their hardware by releasing some update that's not very well compatible with the, with the things that they're exporting. And that would just, they would be very dependent on another country's ecosystem as they're trying to do this South Korean success story. So it's a different world. And, you know, I, for that reason, just the way the markets have changed, I don't think that a pure Korean economic miracle could happen again. But I think that something similar can happen, especially now that China is launching its one belt, one road. Huawei is out there doing the 5G networks. Like I think that maybe with some kind of Chinese umbrella, if a smaller nation like Rwanda is, you know, willing to take the risk of giving up, you know, a lot of its autonomy to Chinese technological power, then yes, it could happen, but it's also very risky because it might not happen. You know, we've seen recently that there are a lot of these Chinese debt traps around the world where they're building infrastructure, but then they're ending, just ending up in, in debt that is just impossible to escape. So it's something to be careful about, something to think carefully about. It is possible, but only after a very careful phase of planning and research. Well, thank you. And with that, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for coming on to the show and sharing your wealth of knowledge on both South Korea and as well as on Samsung. I'm sure our listeners learn a lot from our conversations today and will learn more once they read your book as well. And before I finally let you go, I know you've recommended to at least two books on the show already, but um, is there another book or a movie or podcast or anything that have inspired you recently? Yes. So another book that actually inspired my Samsung book, it's called How Asia Works. It's on Bill Gates's uh, recommended book list. So it actually tells the story. So when they say how Asia works, it doesn't mean everything in Asia, but the economic rises of Japan and South Korea in particular. And he also talks about Vietnam and Singapore. It's an interesting study because he looks at you know, a country like China and asks the question, you know, can this miracle happen again in China? Can a Japanese-Korean rise happen, you know, it's already happening in China, but will it be the same or will it be different? And I, I just appreciated that because he's somebody who brings a wealth of knowledge who, you know, he lived in China, speaks fluent Chinese. He, he's been there for decades and decades and decades and is one of the most respected names in the economics of these industrial miracles that happen. And he, you know, he looks at each country and he sizes up whether this can keep happening. Can there be another Samsung? Can there be another Korea? So that is How Asia Works by Joe Studwell. And that's a great recommendation. And where can our listeners find you if they want to, you know, read your tweets or just um, keep up with your work? So I'm on Twitter at Jeff. So my name at Jeffrey underscore Kane, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y underscore C-A-I-N. And I also have a website, jeffreykane.net, where I post articles occasionally. I post, uh, if you want to get in contact with me on there, my email address is on there, all my contact information. I don't have a public Facebook profile, but I'm still happy to talk with people on Facebook if they want to add me and chat sometimes. So it's uh, the same, it's gkane, G-C-A-I-N, which is uh, where there's a lot of action going on. And we, Analyze Asia, we are on Twitter as well. Our Twitter handle is Analyze Asia, Analyze with AS. And you can find more of our episodes on any podcasting platforms, actually. And again, thank you so much, Jeffrey, for coming onto the show. And thank you to our listeners. And we will see you next time. Thank you, Carol.